everyone, and welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate Kiriakou. And I'm Molly Fox, and today we're discussing a book called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny O'Dell. And we have a very special guest with us today. Welcome to the pod, Matt. Maddie James. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. <laughs> Matt is one of Kate and I's oldest friends. We met all at the same time on the same Paris trip, and we were incredibly obnoxious and forced him to be friends with us, and that's pretty much and how And now I'm going to steal Kate's ovary eggs and sell them for my own financial benefit. <laughs> it's really working out great, this symbiotic relationship. Yeah, progress has been made. It sounds so creepy. <laughs> We've hatched, pun intended, a plan <laughs> to sell some ovary eggs so that we can retire early. <laughs> I hate that. I would volunteer a sperm, but I think I'm like 5'8", so we're only going to get a few bucks for that. So yeah, You have great teeth, though, Matt. Don't sell yourself. I did just get a deep cleaning, so they are there. Mm. <laughs> also, you're a ha- you've got strong hairline, True. good teeth. I could, I could get a solid 60, 70 bucks for a container of <laughs> this is really not appropriate conversation we should you're gonna a container <laughs> he's like here's a water bottle filled with some stuff i don't know what the delivery method is oh i'm sweating all right um so kate as always <laughs> would you like to walk us through a summary Please, i need it of this book I would. I will say that this was one of the trickier books to summarize because, frankly, it is... All over the place. Yes. Everywhere. (laughs) Yes. It is wide-ranging and complex, and there are about, give or take, 10 million examples in here from pop culture, art, uh, music, philosophy, all kinds of things. Yeah, it's, it's all over the place. So... I am going to try my best. Uh, So today we are talking about How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny O'Dell. Jenny O'Dell is an artist from Oakland, California, and has made her career working in the ever-elusive field of art and technology. Uh, If you ask anybody who's been around the field of art and technology, it has changed significantly, (laughs) even in the last 10 years, uh, and doesn't really have a true definition. So there are all kinds of artists working in that field. Um, In this complex and wide-ranging book, Odell argues that attention is our most precious resource. Americans are living in a culture where our value is determined through our work productivity and technology is ubiquitous to our daily lives. The attention economy describes the world of omnipresent technology where companies are able to divert our attention easily, championing their own priorities, so we're constantly taking up the role of consumer in our capitalist system. The first half of the book is about disengaging from this attention economy. And the second half is about re-engaging with something else, time and space. She argues for a placefulness in nature or a recognition 
of ecology and the history of the places that surround us. Throughout the book, Odell is adamant about asserting that she is an anti-technology instead of advocating for a simple technology hiatus or an escape from a capitalist structure. Odell posits the best response is to resist in place by training our attention to focus on things that fall to the wayside in lieu of productivity and consumerism like the physical world. She writes that resisting in place is to, quote, make oneself into into a shape that cannot so easily be appropriated by a capitalist value system. It means recognizing and celebrating a form of the self that changes over time, exceeds algorithmic description, and whose identity doesn't always stop at the boundary of the individual, end quote. Resisting in place by shifting our attention to human dignity and bioregionalism, she writes, can lead to reimagining our social systems, new political action, and radical environmental protection. So that's what I got. I hope that sums up most. That's about all that I got out of it, so yeah. (laughs) That's not true. Yeah, that was good. (laughs) I feel like um, this was another one where I was like, wow, there are just so many ideas in here, and... Mm -hmm. It is difficult to recount them all with without feeling like you're just rewriting the entire yeah. book. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. did appreciate that she warned us that this wasn't really a well-structured, like, argument-focused book. It was just, mm, like, yeah. her mirandering thoughts and own personal evolution. And so I somewhat knew what we were getting into, and it, she, it definitely lived up to her um, explanation. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I kind of went back and forth on whether or not I felt that was like a reasonable strategy. She says at in the the intro and then again throughout the book, like that this is a conversation and that as I wrote it, my opinions and thoughts changed somewhat, you know, cause you're developing these ideas while you're working on the book. And part of me was like, okay, I like that you let us in on the process of like the evolution. But on the other hand, I feel almost like it's, no yeah. let's what's redo what? it then like if you change what's an editor for? I, I feel <laughs> almost like no <laughs> it just it was like i keep going back and forth where i'm like i appreciate it and then i'm also like i just don't know that that's it almost felt like a cop-out where it was like if you changed your mind instead of doing this like long meandering like thought process work maybe go back and redo some of what you wrote so that it connects all through which i didn't really feel like it mm-hmm. felt disconnected i just felt like it wasn't very concise at times and it would have maybe been helpful for her to, if she changed her position on some things throughout the work to go back and and make it more cohesive. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think uh, I did struggle with parts of it because in taking that meandering technique throughout, you also have times where I think her really strong concise points become obfuscated by her meanderingness like you know she's trying to get to a point and eventually when you read the point you're like yes i really like what you're saying Mm -hmm. but i was losing the train of thought in all of the different examples and the different things that she wove in and out of it to get to that point and i think what she's trying to do is demonstrate how not only are the ideas she's presenting complex, but the way you arrive at these conclusions and and work through these thoughts is also mm-hmm. complicated. And mm-hmm. I think she does yeah. a good job of expressing that and showing that process. But as a reading experience, it's much more 
difficult to approach when you're kind of like going through in this way yeah. and then yeah. <laughs> you're like what is happening i also will say just quickly um listening to the audiobook at 1.5 times speed didn't help that fact uh i bet it did <laughs> yeah i i would imagine that would make it pretty difficult although at one point i was wondering would this have been more effective as a podcast because mm-hmm. she could have explored these ideas through interviews with different mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have given it a different kind of dynamic where she's the one posing the question to all of these different groups that might have different responses or opinions or perspectives rather than her being the one to present conduct- contradictory information. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. I, I kind of wondered like, was this actually the best medium for this? You know, mm-hmm. especially the amount of artwork that she references. If you're not mm-hmm. in the art world or you don't know who John Cage is, which many people probably don't, uh, it was probably not super accessible for you. Yeah, I would agree with that. Although, I think that the attempt to do it in a book is really ambitious and cool. And I appreciate mm-hmm. what it ends up being, but... Yeah, maybe a different medium would have been helpful to unpack. Oh, God. I can't believe you don't like saying unpack. I do, we say it all the goddamn time. It's very useful. They're very grad schooly words. Um, unwrap and open. <laughs> it's no better. <laughs> it's not better at all. Uh, okay. I, I, a podcast could have been cool, but I do. I liked what you said, Kate, when you and I were texting about this at one point, where I think. The book could have worked if it had been set up in a slightly different way, where instead of suggesting that this was going to be a how-to manual, it was presented more as a conversation about doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because Kate said to me on a text a while ago that you think it's going to be how to do this thing. And it's actually more of a conversation about what this thing is yeah. and why it matters. Mm-hmm. Not And there's information about like, okay, how do we begin resisting then if this is so important? But it wasn't a very, like, step-by-step guide, which is kind of what the title implies a little bit. And she explicitly contradicts the title at some point, um, stating that the book is is likely intended for folks who have no interest in doing nothing, who want to be active and want to be involved. And so, yeah, yeah, I think um, she definitely, like, puts forth some, some notes on the value of Things aside from nothing, like aside, uh, she puts value into being present and um, into focus, like uh, refocusing one's attention and um, ensuring, I don't know, your attention's in the right place. Uh, But that doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like it's nothing. Nothing doesn't feel like the right word necessarily. I agree. I had a really big issue with the word nothing because I'm like, activism is not nothing. Yeah. And a lot of times she is referring to resisting in terms of activism. So... Yeah, I'm not sure that I totally agreed with the way she framed it, but I did really appreciate the ideas in this book, and we mm-hmm. can get into that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt, would you like to give us your key takeaway to start us off? Okay, so um, I don't know which one's better. My two key takeaways weren't really anything that the book itself was teaching, but were something that like sort of came to mind throughout reading. Um mm. I think the first and the most relevant is that I, so I kind of had a a service level understanding of everything she's discussing in this book. I work in digital advertising. Um, I generally tend to avoid 
uh, media that touches on this subject because it's a little depressing and something that I'm not, I don't quite have the energy to confront because these truths are very heavy and uh, very dangerous. And so it was helpful for me to gain a, a bit of a better understanding of these ideas that are floating around in my mind and also gain more language and more context um, so I can better, um, I don't know, discuss them or perhaps communicate them to people who um, I'm yeah, chatting with. So I agree with just about everything she's saying. Um, the negative impact of the attention economy, um, the benefits of pivoting one's attention elsewhere, um, and of presence and of all that good stuff. She's really diving deep into what it means to be a sentient human. And I love that she's also exploring the ideas of what sentient means beyond humanity's own sentience and consciousness and the possibilities of what consciousness could be. Like, these are all very lofty ideas, and they're very important ideas, I think, to really experiencing life fully. But they are really heavy, deep ideas. And for me, someone who is college-educated, even though it was a bachelor's in film, still... Um, Diving into them is difficult, like a year and a half into therapy and a lot of like personal research, I'm just starting to skim the surface. And I understand that there is so much more possible um, when it comes to living life and embracing it entirely. But embracing it's hard. And so my key takeaway from this was just how incredibly inaccessible um, doing nothing is for most people. And she touches on that, too, in terms of like the privilege that it takes to explore these ideas and experiencing these things that she's putting like saying are valuable to experience but it just sort of bummed me out like in reflecting on how few people individually are going to be able to um explore these ideas and experience these experience these things um and then also like broadly like i just don't see a way in which um larger communities or even like our species like nationally or globally is ever going to be able to to pivot to living life in these ways that i think are so beautiful and mm -hmm. yeah um i don't know it's a little bit of a bummer takeaway but it's it's i think it's an important realization and something that i want to spend more time with is like confronting the inaccessibility of these ideas and how to maybe pull something from them that is a little bit um more digestible and i don't know mm -hmm. help people inch towards these things these mm -hmm. ways of life that she finds so valuable because like most people aren't going to be able to just jump right in it's going to be quite a process Yes, Matt, I agree. I I think one of the experiences I have when I'm reading a book like this or like the what we don't talk about when we talk about fat, like anything like that that requires like a look at society and how we could all change to make it better. I get so stressed out because I'm like, okay, but we won't. Okay. Like I can, yeah. I can do some of these things, but no one else is going to do this shit. Okay. So stop acting like reading this book is going to change the goddamn world. Like it makes me so frustrated because it's like, this is so good, but no one is going to goddamn do it. Yeah. Um, is she mentioned, she kind of calls out Goop's demo, a hundred and like validly so. Um, but it did feel like the aesthetic of this book, the floral cover, um, a lot of like the fine art and, um, you know, academia based references she uses, like it felt like it was geared towards like a Goop demo, maybe a slightly more educated Goop demo. 100%. Most of the people I know who read this book were, like, upper to middle class white millennial women. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's just like, okay, but you're still pouring your life and soul into your stupid Instagram feed. Nothing has changed about, yeah. like, you have not taken this to heart, clearly. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yeah. you're still spending $70 on a stupid ceramic mug. I can't. Yeah. I <laughs> 
seems like you're talking about somebody really specific there, but we will move on. Um. I have to say, really quick, I've been getting into um, ceramic YouTube videos, which are very relaxing Ooh. and incredibly um, beautiful to watch. And I would, I would pay a pretty penny for like a gorgeous handmade ceramic item from an artisan. Like, I get the value in that. <laughs> Everybody would love ceramic mugs, let's be honest. Um, yeah, I think that a part of what she's saying here is that there's no reasonable way for us to truly extract ourselves from technology at this point in time because we use it for our daily lives in every facet. And so it's unreasonable to just say, well, you should just go and live on a commune and not use technology or you should just take a technology hiatus and just be off mm -hmm. social media mm -hmm. and i appreciated that she made that more complex and she was like no that's not the answer because it's unreasonable and unsustainable for like 99.5 percent of the world and then in addition you are 99.9% .9 of Americans because she doesn't address globally. Uh, but you are also, you have a duty and a responsibility to society to stay within it to help change it for the better. Mm -hmm. And so just running away and living on a commune and saying, I'm just going to be anti capitalist here mm -hmm. in the middle of Wyoming with, you know, my one <laughs> friend or whatever is not the answer, right? Because what are you really doing and who are you really helping with that? Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a really fascinating kind of digression where she talks about that in a chapter where she goes into the group dynamics of communes mm -hmm. and kind of cults and mm -hmm. how even when you have chosen to establish a group setting where you are supposedly without responsibility we still have basic human needs that require that eventually responsibility is doled out and yeah. so even when you think that you're able to do it there's no real escape from social dynamics mm -hmm. because we act in those ways regardless of kind of what's going on outside of us uh but actually that does kind of lead me to my key takeaway my key takeaway was a pretty simple one but it's that our attention is one of the only resources we have control over who and what we give it to and as a millennial i think our generation often feels a malaise and generally trapped by the partnership of technology and consumerism. But I found this idea of our attention being this integral and almost sacred thing that we still have jurisdiction over to be really empowering and hopeful because I so often feel like there's no escape. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so framing it in this way of like, no, you're not powerless. You still have power over who and what you choose to give your attention to uh, is a really hopeful thing to me because it's impossible for us to not spend money in this society, right? Like we have to live, we have to buy things and there may be no way to be an ethical consumer in our society, but I think there is a way for us to use the resource of attention in a more valuable way. Yeah. I, that was actually one of my key takeaways too, is that a slightly different thing that our attention is one of our few 
means of protest that we have left. Mm. So Mm -hmm. we can think about it as a, we can weaponize our attention and whether that is by no longer paying attention to something that is just a distraction or by channeling our attention into something very particular, we still do have that agency in our lives. And as you learn more about the way social media and technology were designed to become addictive to us and and everything like that it does feel very satisfying to know that you have some control over not engaging with this technology that is intentionally trying to keep you from being able to disengage from it and feeling like you have control over like no i i don't care what that notification is like uh, goodbye like not interested it feels empowering to know that you don't have to be beholden to it or derive your value as a person from other things that people have just accepted as normal like instagram feeds or whatever Mm -hmm. should i do my key takeaway yeah okay let's hear it so i mentioned that mine was one of mine was similar to your escape but my first one that felt like it resonated the most with me throughout So a few minutes ago, you both mentioned that the word nothing kind of didn't quite resonate with you, that it wasn't maybe the right word to use, but it actually like felt like the right word to me because Mm. I think how she's using the word nothing is to mean nothing productive as defined by our capitalist society. And to do quote unquote nothing is really difficult when we are surrounded by pressures to produce and make and sell and monetize every minute of our day. So my key takeaway was just that doing nothing takes effort in order to resist actively always having to produce in the ways we've been told we must takes a lot of effort and energy. So she describes doing nothing or like holding our attention as something that takes kind of like uh, flexing a muscle or like holding a pose. It takes a lot of Uh, attentive effort and I found that really compelling throughout the whole thing which was that it's actually really fucking hard to actively do nothing Mm -hmm. as defined by capitalism but Mm -hmm. I I try to do that throughout my days sometimes just have these like like invisible moments of protest where I'm like not producing anything in the way that I'm supposed to, or just like not, not buying into the idea that I'm valuable because I sent seven emails before 8am or whatever. Like Mm -hmm. I'm surrounded by people who think that way and act that way and actively disengaging from it and being unwilling to be like defined by that value system is really satisfying to me that like i don't care if that makes you think that i'm less productive or less engaged or whatever like i'm more engaged in my actual life and the things i care about not this arbitrary thing of what makes us valuable in our society as workers or whatever Uh, Mm -hmm. that was a relatively new idea for me i'm still so deeply ingrained in that uh in a i don't know group of individuals like professionally that that do think um that productivity is like the key Mm -hmm. value determinant like determiner of one's value and i am also personally still really exploring how what i value in myself and so getting nudged to start rethinking how I see my, my time, how I spend my time in a way that I feel is valuable is really helpful. Um, because it's hard to let go of those 
wants to seem value in other people's eyes and when other people mm-hmm. see value as productivity um yeah it's a, it's a tricky thing to kind of unlearn yeah i think that's true though is that i think you know you talk about specific work environments and sure it's true that some work environments champion quote unquote hard work which is really just being at the office 24/7 or being on your email 24/7 as being the ultimate best employee you can be but i think that largely it's all of american culture and i think that we really tend to champion people who never take time for themselves and never care for themselves and people who don't really care for other people but just put this ambition above all else and when you think about it I mean, that's not really the world I'd like to live in. That hasn't really created a wonderful world yet. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's a lot more, I think, to being alive and being a living human being and enjoying life than having uh, being on your email 24-7 and being the first person to respond to a team's message. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I also um, definitely rethinking my feelings about the word nothing. Um, I like how you frame it, Molly. Um, and I like that fact that yes, doing nothing takes effort. But I also like that she's sort of in this book, it sort of seems like doing nothing also involves um, undoing uh, mm, yeah. actions that were previously deemed productive. Um, mm-hmm. And that's hard. But yeah, when she was diving into um, what was like, man, D something of manifest destiny, D manifest destiny ing. Um, at the end, uh, the idea that, I don't know, um, once we can find a little bit of balance and then focus our energy and our attention um, on undoing what was previously deemed useful um, and that action actually newly being useful, um, that was mm-hmm. that was a little promising for me. Um, that inspired mm-hmm. a little bit of hope for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think that was interesting. She goes into sort of a point that in the idea of progress and in the vein of production that our culture is far more obsessed with growth and creation than they are with maintaining what we already have. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be a really powerful idea and something that I've definitely observed uh, quite a bit that like new is better, but maintaining what is already here is somehow worse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she uh, is saying that maintaining or destructing what was previously deemed as progressive is like is true progress and mm-hmm. um yeah definitely agree i was in this training earlier this week about kind of navigating trauma and burnout and one of the things that they were talking about was how usually people cope when they're feeling not valued or not efficient enough or whatever the thing that they're telling themselves they're not enough of in their work by being more productive. If you feel like you're not being productive enough compared to everyone around you or whatever, then your solution to that is to send more emails or whatever. But that feeling of like not being productive enough isn't actually a result of not being productive enough. It's a result of like systems that are constantly pressuring us to do and produce more than is even humanly possible. 
And so what the trainer was talking about was that the solution to that feeling is not to send 20 more emails. The solution is to stop. But it feels counterintuitive because we're having this feeling of like, I'm not doing enough. And so the, the solution feels like to do more. But in fact, that will only perpetuate the cycle of burnout and feeling like you're not enough. And it reminds me of how kind of with social media or other things where the only way to win the game and feel satisfied is to stop playing it. There is no amount of posting or interacting or building a following or whatever that will ever make you feel satisfied, like you've arrived and you can finally relax. The only way to do that is to stop engaging with the thing that takes away from you, you know, and and start engaging with things that fill you up instead. And I'm being a little bit critical towards like social media. I, I don't think that there is like a way to engage with social media that actually feels productive and wholesome. I think it is always eroding some sense of ourselves mm. there's sometimes mm. when it's essential or like we do it anyway but i don't think that there is like a an ethical way to like <laughs> be involved with those things and and satisfy ourselves as human beings so the people who are like but it's good to stay in touch with friends and whatever i'm like call them god damn it like yeah. jesus christ <laughs> yeah i agree too um yeah i <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Please leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> I agree too, Molly. Um, no. <laughs> Hi, Molly. I agree with you too. Go ahead. Hello, Molly Fox. I also agree. Can I just too, say yes. that's what the narrator sounded like in the audiobook? How to Do oh, Nothing really? Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny O'Dell. So Molly, oh, I no. agree with you. One of those audiobooks. She, I could get like terrible. the more I listened to it, the more I got used to it. But the first hour, or so I was just like, "Oh, so this is already so dry, and you're not yeah. making it any and better." Now you're talking <clears throat> like this, and I'm going to jump out. It's so disjointed, like, oh god. Um, but no, I I agree, Molly. Uh, I like that she spent a decent amount of time talking about the impact of monetizing social media. I don't think monetizing was the right word, but that's definitely. Uh, an applicable word or even monetizing our attention commercializing commercializing yeah it's like selling everything all the time and that's what makes most popular forms of social media so harmful that they're Mm -hmm. wet the fact that um our attention is being commodified and that advertising is so deeply integrated and that into these platforms and that these platforms are so are designed to be incredibly manipulative and addictive um Mm -hmm. there is no way to engage with them in a healthy manner because it's always going to be a net negative impact on oneself. And so um, definitely agree with you. And I like that she points that out. Um, and I've been neck deep in that reality for years. Mm-hmm. And so it's nice to have a little bit stronger of an understanding as to why it's so bad. I also like that she spends some time um, exploring alternatives. There are other forms of social media um, of, uh, I think she touches on something called mesh networking or mesh networks, mesh internet networks, mesh Wi-Fi. I don't know. Um, that are kind of decentralized ways of um, engaging with digital media and connecting via digital media um, in a bit healthier way, in a way that's not being commodified. And so that's promising because I I really appreciate that she doesn't just completely denounce. Uh... <laughs> she doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I appreciate that she doesn't completely denounce technology because there is so much potential uh, in technology. And so finding these technologically fueled ways of connecting in healthier um, manners 
is uh, something that's yeah a little prompting to explore, and I'm glad that she took a little time to explore that. Yeah, I I liked what you were saying, Matt. I think it's a lot to me like these other social structures like sexism or racism where so long as we have that in our society it will continue to influence all of the other spheres that it touches and so Mm -hmm. it feels very precarious to think of technology without it interacting with capitalism because we do live in a capitalist society and so I just wonder how that's really even possible and if it's possible for a short time when will that end and that sounds really Mm. kind of depressing but i have a hard time believing that it will never become commercialized because ultimately Mm -hmm. that's how people end up making money from creating these things and so um it is it is really tricky though uh that it seems unavoidable that it influences all of these other spheres of technology and uh, social media networking specifically. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And it kind of brings me back to Molly's past point of like, nothing's ever going to change. That's sort of impossible. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hello, we're here to tell you everything sucks. <laughs> yeah, which kind of, yeah. I guess to unpack that a little further, I'd like to um, maybe bring up my second key takeaway. Which, again, I have not fully thought through, so I don't have a lovely, succinct way of putting it, um, because I finished this book 22 minutes before we started recording (laughs) this podcast. Because because I don't have a healthy relationship with the uh, attention economy, and so I procrastinated. Um, But I recently (laughs) read um, Austin Channing Brown's I'm Still Here, and she concludes the book with a, a segment where she discusses, I think she phrases it as the death of hope. Where, um, as a black woman, she's put herself out there so many times and she's tried so many times to be hopeful for progress and be hopeful for her own well-being and, you know, so many other things. And constantly she's, um, like shut down. Constantly she's, her hope is, um, dashed. And so mm-hmm. she's reached a point where she's just accepted the death of hope. And I can't remember kind of what the next step beyond that is, which she does put it quite, quite eloquently. And she finds like an energy and a drive in, something um and is still working towards progress knowing that she'll likely never see super significant change in her lifetime and that super super significant change may never even be realized and so Mm -hmm. um jenny towards the end of the book dives into bioregionalism and you know the incredible value that she sees in nature which like hella on board with that love nature um and want to better understand uh, bioregionalism. I started saying hella since I lived in California for the past five years. I'm not sure why, but it's... I'm here for it. <laughs> it's use- I think it's useful in a lot of contexts. Um, uh, I have a long-term dream of owning a little bit of land and having a little farm for myself, and I really appreciate that Jenny kind of sees so much value in pivoting our attention to nature um, and the incredible complexities there and the incredible power that it holds. Um, but she does say, like, if you're going to further explore bioregionalism or anything related to environmentalism you're going to confront an immense amount of destruction and destruction is going to be the most prevalent thing you confront compared to anything else. And so Mm. I sort of took away uh, the fact that in wanting to be a bit more involved in an activist way, um, in wanting to spend my life creating some positive change in the world, I really have to get over my own death of hope and I need to get over the fear and the anger that comes from confronting such immense destruction because if I don't have a healthy relationship with those emotions, um, 
I'm not going to be able to do anything useful because they're mm-hmm. always going to be there. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was just a helpful little nudge that Jenny gave me in, like, you know, the next steps of my therapy sessions. Um, yeah. yeah, I love that, Matt. That's, yeah. That's really great. And I think it does tie into what I was saying earlier, where, like, reading something like this can be really frustrating because, you know, it kind of requires everyone to agree to the group project and not many people will. But there is still things we can do internally to, even if it's just to give ourselves a better quality of life, which ripples outwards all around us. And Mm -hmm. that's really important. And we do have control over those things. And just because it's really infuriating that we can't control what everyone else does and that that ultimately affects us, the solution is not to just be like, well, then I give up, even though very tempting, let's be honest. (laughs) The solution is to, to dig deeper into ourselves and figure out what can what we can do to find the most happiness and highest quality of life in our own lives that we have control over and then let that yeah like go let the shit storm just just live in the yeah. eye of the shit storm yeah absolutely <laughs> i also find it encouraging that even though Yes, of course, let's be honest, the majority of people are not going to do this. Mm -hmm. There are people already out there doing this. Mm -hmm. And so we are joining a group that already exists. We're not starting a movement. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate it. Thank God, God, because I can't do that. I don't have the the skill for it. (laughs) That'd be a a hard pass. Yeah. Um, But she, throughout the book, talks a lot about the indigenous population and how well they care for um, our nature and bioregional areas. And, um, you know, I just appreciate the acknowledgement of that and Mm -hmm. the hopefulness that comes from knowing that there have been people that have been doing this for a very, very long time. And we're just joining and helping them rather than being the ones that are tasked with beginning this Mm -hmm. sort of a movement. Yeah, that's a great note. That makes me feel a little better. <laughs> We're not alone. <laughs> uh I do have a quote that kind of reminded me of what you were talking about with the algorithm and the self, which I found really fascinating. And I'll read this paragraph. It's a little long, but I'll read the whole thing. So she is writing about um how algorithms sort of collapse and flatten the self. And in it She writes, my dad, a musician for much of his life, says that this is actually a definition of good music, music that sneaks up on you and changes you. If we're able to leave room for the encounters that will change us in ways we can't yet see, we can also acknowledge that we are each a confluence of forces that exceed our own understanding. This explains why, when I hear a song I unexpectedly like, I sometimes feel like something I don't know is talking to something else I don't know through me. For a person invested in a stable and bounded ego, this kind of acknowledgement would be a death wish. But personally, having given up on the idea of an atomic self, I find it to be the surest indicator that I'm alive. And I just really loved that uh, quote because she is dealing with a lot of different things here. So first, that our self and who we are is so much greater than an algorithm could predict or flatten us into. And that when we are in the attention economy, we don't allow ourselves to be our full beings and our full identities. But then the second part of that is how she feels when she is able to find something that changes herself and her idea of the self. And I I find that to be 
so powerful that if we only allow ourselves to change, that there are all of these other factors outside in the world and in society that can act on us and influence mm-hmm who we see ourselves as and our identities as a self. Um, And that that speaks to the connectedness of each other and of a society. And so I really connected with that quote, especially as it relates to art and music, because I think that's also how I feel when I come across something that I perhaps ordinarily wouldn't have given a chance. But then once I do, it changes you and it changes me. And yeah. I really love that. I really like that quote too. And the way you just talked about it really reminded me of one of the ones I pulled. She talks at different points about Americans' rigid individualism and how we have this, we have developed identities that we are like alone in the world, that we're like the main characters of the world. And I think there's like value to living that way sometimes, like to romanticize your own life. Like that's important. You should do that. And you should wake up some days feeling like the main character of your life because you are the main character of your life. Mm -hmm. But I think Americans often, and I definitely do this where we take it so far that it's like, if I don't need anyone, then I'm safer that way. Like Mm -hmm. if I can be fully self-sufficient then I won't be like hurt or alone or like I'll be alone, but it won't matter that I'm alone kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And she has this quote that points out the like super flaw in that plan. And I was, (laughs) I felt very like, "Mm." called out. Yeah. I was like, read that quote to me. I need to hear that quote. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, on an earlier part of the page, she talks about like tenants living in New York and how they were, the people who were younger were much less likely to be a part of the community to like, if there's rats or lights out or whatever, they're much more like once they realize that it would take um, organizing as a group to change the apartment problems, they were like, mm, no, thanks. We'll just live with it. Mm-hmm. And I, God, do I know that feeling? Like, oh, yeah. If I can't solve that problem oh, yeah. myself, I guess we'll just uh, live with it then. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Literally. And, like, I've had this thought process before where it's like, well, I guess we could, like, solve this problem if we, like, organize as a group. But I would rather die than talk to someone yeah. about my, it. My kitchen light has, the bulb <laughs> has been burned out for two months. And I'm not going to talk to my landlord about it. I don't want to talk to him. I don't want someone to come into my apartment to change the light bulb. Like, it's one of those fluorescent ones. I'm moving in six weeks. It's not worth it. <laughs> so no, read me that not. quote. Six weeks. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. Uh, so I got natural light. Push, I'm good to go. Push back I mean, on that. Uh, in got a flashlight on your phone. <laughs> so at the end of that chapter, where she's talking about those ideas and um, how we build relationships with strangers in order to have better networks, she says bioregionalism teaches us of emergence, interdependence, and the impossibility of absolute boundaries. As physical beings, we are literally open to the world, suffused every second with air from somewhere else. As social beings, we are equally determined by our contexts. If we can embrace that, then we can begin to appreciate our and others' identities as the emergent and fluid wonders that they are. Most of all, we can open ourselves to those new and previously unimaginable ideas that may arise from a combination from our combination, like the lightning that happens between an evanescent cloud and the ever-shifting ground. Mm. so i was like okay what you're saying is life and our ideas and our senses of selves are richer when we 
allow ourselves to let go of our boundaries and exist in relationship with other people. And yet, mm-hmm. that is the worst thing I can imagine. <laughs> I just threw up a little bit in my mouth. Yeah. Uh, no. I think part of it is like, this becomes really evident when we think about it in relation to the pandemic year we just lived through, mm-hmm. right? That even when faced with something that should have brought us all together, because we were all facing the same challenge, there were still so many people that chose to go it alone. Mm-hmm. And it is really disheartening to see something like that happen because what she's calling for is the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. And maybe for two weeks in March of 2020, we all felt like there was some togetherness, mm-hmm. but then that quickly subsided. And so back to your early point, it is really disheartening because it's like, wait, we already lived through something like that and it definitely did not bring us together and it definitely did not organize us in a way that was for the greater good. Something that it made me think, though, that I like decided probably against my better judgment to like try to do, I really tend to do like the black and white thing where I'm like, like Trump supporters or whatever, like they're just animals and horrible people. And I'm like, okay. I mean, obviously, I don't think that across the board, but you get into that like mindset of like, mm-hmm. how could you possibly support this monster? You're a monster, and it's like that's not helpful. Yeah. As as easy as that is to do, and as tempting as it is, like we are seeing what is happening in our society when we are polarized like that. And as much as I feel like I am on the right side of this goddamn thing, it is not helping. Like I, we have got to figure out a way to like stop doing that. And one of the ways I think we have to do it is what she's describing, where it's like, yeah, you just have to accept that the differences are valuable instead of constantly trying to attack and and prevent yourself from being changed by those differences. Like, yeah. ugh, and horrible. I think, in but... terms, <laughs> I think in terms of politics, too, it's easy to assume every person supports a political party for the same reason, too. Yeah. And, like, the truth is that there is a lot of diversity in why people do the things that they do and it's all related to their identities and their backgrounds and their perspectives and their experiences and so it's always much more complicated than just saying x equals x plus y equals z Mm -hmm. you know so i think that that's a part of it too is just like recognizing how many factors are at play here Mm -hmm. agreed (laughs) well my question is kind of a fun one it's so she talks in the book obviously about all these different ways that we have available to us to resist she describes some of them as like conforming through parody where you're like conforming so rigidly that it's like a you're making a joke of the whole thing um Mm -hmm. withholding your attention as we've talked about not participating in a way that instead of when someone answers you a question instead of answering it you like offer some completely different thing to them so instead of if the question is will you do this thing instead of saying yes or no you say i'd prefer not to so it's not you're not really refusing but you still are um and resisting productivity myths like we talked about too so what i would like to know is do either of you have like a method that you employ a lot that you use to actively resist these types of things or to redirect your attention yeah definitely Mm -hmm. self-medication 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's one. called weed, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's called a vape, all right? Um, I think, yeah, I think there are a lot of different ways. Like, personally, uh, meditation and working out and just being present in, like, a moment where I'm doing something just for my body and myself and um, that sort of thing of this is not quote unquote productive in terms of making me money or working for an employer but like sitting in a meditative state is something that I'm doing for my own uh self Mm -hmm. um and then like professionally I think I turn a lot to asking questions back to the person who's asked me to do something so Mm -hmm. someone will ask me let's do this or make a request of me do this thing for whatever. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I'll ask follow-up questions like, why are we doing this? What is this for? You know, kind Mm -hmm. of getting to the root of like, is this actually productive? Because, you know, I think we oftentimes in this productivity myth will fall into the idea that um, doing anything is productive. Mm -hmm. And that's so untrue. (laughs) Um, Yes. So that's like a very, very mini way of resisting but <laughs> i actually really like that that's one of my strategies yeah. too is that when when i'm like someone requests that i do something instead of just doing it i i make sure that i understand the reason like what's the goal what's mm-hmm. the purpose like i don't just like blindly follow the request yeah i need to work on that because when i get requests sometimes i can see how we can improve efficiency um or i can uh recognize the lack of productivity and the efforts like that I'm being asked to put forth. Um, mm-hmm. But I still just say yes, because it's easy and because I want to make my bosses happy and because my bosses are nice. And I have this inner dialogue where I tell myself that they understand things more complexly than I do. And that I'm sure there's a reason to why they're asking, they're making their request. And there was probably, not a reason. <laughs> they're probably, I don't I, know. Yeah. It's, I it's, think no, that totally can kidding. be a form of like, <laughs> resistance too. like often I will do this thing where I am like frustrated or I'm like I should push back on this this is ridiculous whatever and then I stop and I'm like actually this doesn't matter at all I will just do it yeah saying yeah. yes is easier sometimes and oh, totally. even if something and also like a lot of what we do is we're, we're our teams are our team is so focused on granular details and 99% of the time it's unnecessary, but a 1% of the time it is very necessary. And that granular detail would have like, you know, been an issue. And so I understand why we have to, you know, spend all this time, um, for sure, making sure everything's buttoned up a hundred percent. It's just, uh, I, I gotta definitely work on finding ways to resist a little bit when it comes to my professional life. Cause I do just spend too much time on things. My perfectionism has been an issue professionally um i can't just like mm-hmm. let things go and say this is good enough i have to make sure that everything is spaced out perfectly and that the line breaks look really great and all these mm-hmm. things so um that's yeah, go back to our brene brown episode and just give that a, a, a real quick <laughs> listen i will yeah um real quick i don't know you <laughs> can cut most of that out puzzle. but um I want to agree with Kate and say that meditation has definitely been a useful tool for me in developing my strength to resist. Um, been doing that for a while and definitely wasn't into it from a spiritual sense when I first started, but learning it from like a medical sense and the actual impact it's having on healing your neurological pathways or rerouting them, I guess, um, mm-hmm. 
uh, is really fascinating to me, and I've noticed a significant difference. Um, I also, uh, thanks to this book, want to spend a little bit more time um, paying attention to nature. Um, I've always been fascinated by nature and the complexity of all of the different ecosystems that exist on this planet. I've also been fascinated by the potentials for uh, various forms of consciousness in different creatures, because um, I think that humanity is far too quick to assume consciousness can only take a f the form that it takes for us. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. I think she uh, mentions, I think, Kate, you were discussing, someone, someone was discussing, the, or Motley, you were discussing um, the value in community and the value in a collective existence. And um, I, that Jenny mentions uh, that that extends to a collective existence with nature. Um, and so, yeah, just spending more time paying attention to the intricacies of nature and maybe learning a little bit more about it and letting my attention fall there versus, you know, anywhere else I think is going to be a, a useful tool in helping me mm -hmm. kind of do the personal development tea kind of things that are going to get me to a spot where I can actually be of value to other people. Well, you're already of value to us. So yeah, <laughs> you don't need to try hard to do that. Um, but I was just going to say, I really like the idea of spending energy in things that are not uh, obviously commercial, like just going mm. out and sitting in nature. There's no way for someone to make money off of you doing that or for you to make money off of you doing that. Or, I mean, you could if you, like, started, like, some Instagram about it. But it's, like, not doing that is the, the point, right? Like, yeah. no, I'm actually mm -hmm. just going to go be out there and not have to sell this to anyone. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, I love that. So... I think we all have the same pop culture pairing and we're actually doing something a little bit special this week where we love our pop culture pairing so much. We are actually going to do a mini bonus episode where we discuss it in depth, <laughs> but I will just name it here on this episode. So our pop culture pairing for this week is Bo Burnham's newest comedy special. It's on Netflix. It's called Inside. Uh, he taped this over the course of the pandemic year in a an apartment that he had rented that's empty. And it's essentially a one-man show where he is really thoughtfully exploring ideas of what it means to be a creative, uh, capitalism, technology, what it is to be on the internet. Um, and all of those interesting things, a lot of which mm -hmm. uh, showed up in this book. So we thought it would be pretty much the perfect pairing uh, for this. Yeah, so let's give our ratings. Um, should I go first? Yeah, go for it. Kate. Okay, um, I rated this 7 out of 10 Catalpa trees, which are native to Illinois, where I live, and one of my favorite trees. Uh, I thought that that was a nod towards the bioregionalism uh, that she talks about throughout the book. I do not know the name of many birds in my area, so that is a challenge of <laughs> me to find and name them, because uh, she does talk about birds a lot in her area. Yeah. Actually, I went with the bird thing. I did 3.5 out of 5 blue jays, because mm. blue jays are my oh, favorite bird, and she talks about them so much. Cool. We all have the same rating. I gave it a three out of ten on the anxiety scale, which um, <laughs> for for more common scales would be a seven out of ten. The anxiety scale is reversed um, because the attention economy has caused me quite a bit of anxiety, um, and so I thought that was pretty relevant. But I thought this book was pretty decent. Nice. Yeah, I love that. That is great. Um. Well, 
check us out on social media and follow us and subscribe. All the things, even though we just told you to get off the internet. Um, sell, this sell, is, sell. This is all, I will say, yeah, Molly and Kate's work and words and this podcast and everything that surrounds it is well worth your attention. Um, as a completely oh, unbiased non-friend i highly recommend that is actually our biggest fan some of my favorite moments of this podcast have been when matt has like listened to our episodes and then texted us about them it's really wonderful i'm excited to yeah eventually be your tour manager when you start i'm excited for that too We can't pay you. We don't have any money. We'll pay you in Blue Jays. (laughs) I have several. We'll we'll pay you in uh, nature walks. How does that sound? That's good. And photos of my dog falling asleep in an egg carton. Done. I know how much you love them. Where's the contract? (laughs) Signing right now. Oh my gosh. Well, I digress. Uh, Tune in again next time for more of our bullshit. (laughs) 